Well, it's a question that we all wrestle with, I think, continually, whether we recognize it or not. It's the predominant question of society, of life. It's just part of being human. It's the question, who am I? What am I doing? Where am I going? What am I after? And is it worth it? Why are we here? Should it be about success? Family? Reputation? Legacy? What's my life about? And I can't help but be a little self-conscious that I've started sermons this way before, but it's a pervasive question in our world and a question that, praise God, he answers in his word uh, over and over again. I suspect because he knows um, we tend to be forgetful. We, We tend to lose track, get pulled off, get distracted. And, and so we need these constant reminders coming back again and again. And so the question that we're going to be addressing this morning is simply that. What is this life about? And uh, we're getting back into Philippians. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, um, verses 27 to 30. If you don't have a Bible on you this morning, um, just slip up your hand. One of our ushers will bring one to you. We want you to have God's word open on your lap. Um, I have nothing of value to say. Uh, it is God's word that we come together um, to. And so uh, if, uh, yeah, if you don't have one, get one. You're going to need it. So as we, uh, we start into this, this next section here, Paul's turning a corner in the book of Philippians. Uh, I know a lot of people were a little confused when we ended the last series um, with three verses left in chapter one. Like, can you just finish the chapter? We got so close. Why, why leave these three verses dangling? Um, well, because there's a transition here. Uh, I think it's a pretty clear transition. Um, the first 26 verses of chapter one is Paul talking about himself. He, he introduces himself. He told them how he's praying for them, how God had been at work advancing the gospel even through his chains. He told them about his own life is just revolving around seeing Christ magnified and how he has this joy invincible because his goal is to honor Christ and and everything else just serves that one purpose. And he knows that he can honor Christ if he lives, he can honor Christ if he dies, and so it's, it's checkmate. There's nothing you can do. You can't touch my joy. Kill me, I get to see Christ. Let me live, I get to continue serving Christ and storing up treasure for that day. Um, verse 27, then he turns this corner, the pronouns change from I, here's what I have been doing to you. Paul says, now here's what you need to do. This is what this looks like now as a command. And these verses lay the foundation for the next section. Um, The main thrust of this command is is a life worthy of the gospel. The underlying tone, though, that begins to build here and and will continue to carry throughout chapter 2 is the idea of unity. The outcome of this gospel life is unity in the church. This deep radical unity, a unity as we strive together, rooted in um, what Christ has done on the cross, a unity that, that then will makes us shine like stars in a corrupt and crooked world, and a unity that we'll see uh, put on display in these faithful servants of, uh, of Timothy and Epaphroditus. So that's, that's where we're going over the next few weeks, but he starts here, 
this most basic question, who are we? What are we about? What's important in this life? Um, let me read for us Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. It's a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Would you join me in prayer as we unpack God's word together? Father, we've sung it. We need you. God, I need you. Lord, would you open your word to us this morning? We come as desperate and needy sinners, our eyes often blinded and, and misguided, our hearts distracted and running after other things. God, capture our hearts again this morning. Bring our focus back onto you in Christ. God, would you take my uh, fumbling stammering tongue and use it to proclaim your glory again. Lord, that your church might be built up, that we might see uh, your glory on display and live lives transformed by it, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing I want us to see uh, is this first phrase in, in verse 27. A gospel-worthy life has a singular focus. It's a singular focus. That, that first word says it all, only. Only. And actually Paul, even in the Greek, he, he brings that right to the front. Only. When God uses a word like only, we, we better pay attention. Right? That should catch us. Above all else, nothing else matters. Just this, only do one thing. What is it? Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. That's our job. That's our sole purpose, calling. That's our identity. So what does that mean? Well, first we have to understand, what does he mean by worthy of the gospel? We, we, could, we could get that wrong, right? We need to go back to the basics for a second. We're saved by grace through faith. No one earns salvation. It, it, it's not that we need to make ourselves deserving of the gospel. I and mean, just think about that. What a, what a command that would be. Live in such a way as to make yourself deserving of the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross and his bearing the wrath of God. Not going to happen. I mean, that's, that's a bar I cannot reach. I can't come anywhere close to that. And that's the whole point of the gospel. We're not worthy. That, that's, that's it. We deserve the wrath of God for our sin. Every one of us has lived a life of rebellion against God, doing things our own way, deciding for ourselves what's right and what's wrong rather than submitting to him. And it's, it's treason against the creator king of the universe. The gospel then, the good news, is not that you're worthy. 
I've heard it said that the arms of Jesus spread on the cross is God saying, this is how much you're worth. No, no, it's not a display of the greatness of man. It's a display of the magnitude of our sin and the glory and grace of God. It's not that you are worthy. It's that God is gracious. It's that God acts exactly counter to what we deserve. Instead of pouring out his wrath on us for eternity as we deserved, he poured out on Christ on the cross in our place so that the undeserving might be forgiven, that by trusting in Christ, sinners could be made righteous, rebels could be made children, those destined for death and hell can be given life and eternity with God. The logic of the word worthy here flows the opposite direction. Not a life that makes you worthy of the gospel, but rather the gospel is worthy of your life. So live a life that's worthy of the gospel, a life in fitting response to what you've already been given, a life that that honors that gift, a life becoming of who you are in Christ. So I hope we see the, the difference here this morning. It's not we're trying to earn God's favor. It's that he's already given it and we want to live in response to it. God calls sinners come. Absolutely weak and, and humbled. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling to say, God, I am helpless and hopeless. I deserve your wrath. And because of what Christ has done, I'm begging for your grace. And he gives it joyfully, generously. Then having been given this grace and full pardon and and secure status in the family of God, then we're told, now now live a life in keeping with that. Live a life that's worthy of what you've been given. That's what we're after here. Paul says this this phrase, let your manner of life, um, it's the word politeomai, and 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 it's from where we get our word politics. Um, It has to do with citizenship. the the rights and responsibilities of living as a a productive citizen or a a contributing member of society. Uh, Philippi, remember, was a a Roman colony. Um, They were an outpost of Rome. They were led by Roman officials appointed straight from Rome. Um, It was a very prestigious thing. They were very proud of that in their city. That was part of their identity. And it was a significant thing in that day to be a a Roman citizen. That was a place of, of honor. And many of them were, and and Paul is kind of capitalizing on that and saying, live as a good citizen, not not of Rome, but of heaven, of the the family of God, the kingdom of God. We get a a glimpse of that during the Olympics. People talk about representing their country well. They, They train with this just relentless discipline for Years and they travel across the world and they, and they compete to their uttermost representing their country, right? And they wrap themselves in the Canadian flag and they say, I just, I want to do my country proud. I want to, I want to honor my country. That's what Paul's calling for. Let your life represent the gospel well. Back to that word only. The world screams out, who are you? What are you about? What's your purpose in this life? What are you going to accomplish? Are you going to do something that, that's meaningful? And Paul says, block all of that out. 
only. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Do that. We were talking about just this. Came up at small group last week, and Steve just pointed out um, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, and 18. That's it. Right there. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. That's it. That's the will of God for you. It shows up again in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification, your, your holiness. We, we get all bent out of shape and flustered and, and asking, what's God's will for my life? And, and you know, I'm trying to make these decisions on career or spouse or, or, or big decisions. And, and what's God's will? It's right here. Your holiness. A life worthy of the gospel. Just one more, Micah 6.8. He's told you, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with your God. That's it. What about my business? What about my success? What about my, my savings, my retirement? What about the, the impact that I have in this world? Sure. I mean, if God brings those things along, if, if you have that opportunity, those things are fine. But one thing is central. One thing is necessary. One thing is required, regardless of whatever else swirls about us, what trials come, what, what success happens or doesn't happen, what hopes and dreams are fulfilled or left a painful question mark. Here's our task. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Your day-to-day -day heart, disposition, your actions, your faith through it all, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let everything else fall. It's a distant second. Let it go. Above all, with this singular focus, worthy of the gospel. But what does that mean? When we put some flesh on that, how do we do that? What does it actually look like on the ground? Well, a gospel-worthy life is singular and focused. Then he goes on to say it's, it's striving in fellowship. And look at the rest of verse 27 here. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, and with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's it. He's, he's defining this gospel-worthy life. He's saying, whether I get to visit you again or not, here's what I want to be happening. Here's what I want to hear about as I hear about you. And he gives them two things. Standing firm in one spirit and with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The first one is defensive, right? Standing firm. Hold your ground. It's the picture of the, the soldiers in battle with their shields locked together and the opponents are, are coming at them. He's saying, stand firm. Hold. Don't get pushed back when trials and oppositions and, and doubts attack you. Don't let it rock you. Don't let it shake you. Stand firm, living worthy of the gospel. And notice it, it runs all the way through this section. We'll bump into it again. 
the fellowship of the saints together in this. We read scripture so individualistically. We, as North Americans, come to it and it's about me. This is God's word for me. He's my personal savior. This is my personal walk with Christ. It's an individual thing. Scripture is overwhelmingly communal. This isn't written to an individual. This is written to a church. What your manner of life. You stand firm. See, Greek has something that English only has in Texas. Did you know that? In, in, in English, um, the word you is plural or singular. If I say you, I could be talking to Dorothy specific or I could be talking to everybody. In Texas, they fixed that. They have y'all. Um, they have a plural, second person plural. Um, I can't quite use that regularly and not feel a little out of place. Um, but in Greek, you can do that. It, it distinguishes. And so the, the command here isn't you individually stand firm, it's y'all stand firm together in one spirit. It's the church. It's not as though you know, my, my neighbor is falling, but I'm standing firm and that's okay. No, stand firm together, linking arms together. Again, if you have that, that wall of soldiers with their shields linked and, and one falls, there's a, there's a break in the wall. The defenses are down. We need to be standing firm together, unified. Now, there's some question mark here in one spirit. What does he mean by that? Um, I think that should be capitalized, capital S, spirit. I think that's the Holy Spirit. Um, The word here is pneumatos, which which Paul never uses to speak of like a spirit of unity. He he doesn't use it in that sense. He uses it a little more concretely. Um, He does on two other occasions use of it to to clearly speak of the Holy Spirit in this kind of same phrasing. So Ephesians 4 is one of those places. And it's a very similar passage. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. It's like the same thing. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit. And there he's clearly talking about the Holy Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope, which belongs to your call. So standing firm defines this this life worthy of the gospel, standing firm together in the Holy Spirit, that's what unites us. We're, we're filled with, connected by, empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's where we unite together, rooted in Him, trusting in Him, united by this one Spirit that fills all of us. And then he says, with one mind, striving together side by side for the faith of the gospel. Not just holding our ground, we're not, we're not just keeping the defenses up. This is offense now. We're moving forward. We're taking ground. We're striving together, making progress in the faith of the gospel. Okay, what is the faith of the gospel? There's two ways you could read that, right? Is it the faith, the, the act of believing in us that the gospel produces? Stand firm in, in growing in the, or striving together and growing in the, the faith, the trust that we have in the gospel? Or is Paul saying um, the faith, as he often does, the way we would use the word religion, right? The, the Christian faith, the, seeing the, 
the progress of the Christian faith. And so striving together to see Christianity advance, to see lost people saved, to see the church grow and thrive. And I think the answer is both. They happen together. You can't separate those two. He's calling them to be striving together for their collective faith in the gospel. They're growing and their trust in the gospel of Christ, moving forward in the knowledge of Christ, advancing in the maturity of Christ. And not at all separate from that, they were to grow and make progress in the growth of the church. As they were growing in their faith and their maturity, they would be growing then and sharing that gospel with those who needed to hear it. Proclaiming it boldly to a broken and needy world, not not only by their words, but also by this transformed life. So Christianity is not about a status quo. And I think that's a a real danger for us. It's not about just not turning your back on Christ. I haven't walked away, so I'm doing fine. No, no, it's about making progress. It's about growth, moving forward, striving together. It's not just, I I call myself a Christian from the the back row of the church, you know, once every, you know, two or three weeks. No, are you progressing in the faith? Are you striving? Think of that, that athlete who's, who's training diligently so as to not let down his country, so as to give his country a good name. Are we training ourselves in godliness? Are you walking with Christ more closely now than you were a year ago? Are you growing in holiness, putting off sin and putting on righteousness? Do you see the fruit of the Spirit increasing in your life? Are you part of the church growing and and being built up? A gospel-worthy life is actively growing in Christ. Pick up your Bible, read it, meditate on it, pray through it. Let let God's word be transforming you and be sharing that good news. Be defending that good news in your social context that, that you have. Let's just point out the obvious The gospel-worthy life is produced by the gospel. How do I stand firm in one spirit? How do we strive for the faith of the gospel? Well, by knowing and, and truly believing and actually living out that gospel. In the gospel, I see God's goodness on display, on Christ's death and resurrection. I'm not going to doubt that. I can stand firm because I know what I see at the cross. In the gospel, I see God's love for me. I see that God is a God who is faithful to keep his promises. He can be trusted. I see the God who uses even the greatest evil to bring about the most amazing good the world has ever seen. I stand firm in the gospel with my eyes fixed on that gospel, knowing and trusting and walking in what I see there. In the gospel, I see what it means then to love others. In the gospel, I see what it means to to grow in Christian maturity. In the gospel, I see the motivation to share this glorious news with all who need to hear. In the gospel, I see what it means to strive forward. You say, well, John, I heard the gospel before. You you talked about it last week. Like, enough already. 
No. No, you need it again. I need it again and again and again and again. We, we never outgrow the gospel. The gospel-worthy life flows out from being saturated in this gospel, knowing it, living it to the point that you, you cut me and I bleed gospel. It's all that I am. Notice again, Paul is redundantly clear um, with one mind, striving together side by side in case you missed it. You can't go it on your own. Again, this, this North American and I think specifically Albertan individualism is so dangerous. Like I was so shocked. I was talking to some of my pastor friends in Ontario and they said, well, just have people sign up for things. Just put on a sign up online and have people sign up. I'm like, no, Alberta, people don't do that. That doesn't happen. Like they, they're doing their own thing. They'll show up on their own time. Um, we have a different culture out here. I can handle it. I can take care of myself. I'm going to do my own thing as, as I see fit. And, and, and it's me and my family against the world. Maybe I'll come to church when it suits me, if they do the things that, that I like. But it's Sunday only and it's on my terms and don't get too personal. It's not that I'm melted into this body of believers and doing life together. I keep my walls up and I just happen to let that wander into the church every now and then. And it's insanity. It's spiritual suicide. And those who think they're the strongest march confidently into their own demise. The gospel-worthy life comes as we live together, being of one mind. The, the word there literally is one soul, striving side by side. Aristotle actually uses the same uh, phrase, you've maybe heard the quote, that's, that's what a true friend is. It's, it's two people with one soul. He stole it from Paul. Do we have that? That kind of relationship with the church? They're the people who know my heart. This is my, my soul here gathered together. These are the people that know what I'm struggling with. The people that I'm growing with, that know where I need to grow, that see where God is growing in me. The ones that, that you actually let close enough to, to challenge you on sin in your life. That's painful. I'd rather not. That wall is very uh, appropriate at that point, right? These people can hold you accountable. Are you striving together side by side after holiness? It's why we do small groups. Because those kinds of relationships um, are really hard with 75 people for two hours on a Sunday morning. They happen as we sit down together, as we share together and wrestle through things together. As we walk together transparently. As we're struggling and growing together. I heard just yesterday, um, I love this, small groups is not an event, it's a lifestyle. That, that's what we're talking about. That's what this prayer meeting is coming up, not this Wednesday, but next. Um, that we would gather around together as a people who just finished singing, Lord, we need you, and to get on our knees and say, God, we need you. I want to pray together and strive together. Don't, don't skip those. Don't let those things kind of, ah, you know, it's just another event on the calendar. No, this, is, this is part of our being of one soul together and striving side by side. It's so important. 
It's not just something we, we do here and there. It's who we are. It ought to be. This kind of one soul fellowship is so needed for the, for the gospel worthy life. I can't, I can't do it alone and, and neither can you. So we're to have this, this singular focus and then striving in fellowship. And then finally, a gospel worthy life uh, is secure in faith. Let's look at verses 28 to 30 here. Paul writes, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. That is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. What's that about? Why does he say that? Where does that come from? Well, they were under attack. They had opponents. They lived in a world that was hostile to them. Uh, Paul says at the end, verse 30, that, that they are engaged in the same conflict that they know that he had and still has. Well, what conflict did he have? Well, it was Acts 16, when Paul first showed up in Philippi to preach the gospel. How'd that go? He and Silas were dragged by an angry mob in front of the officials. They're wrongly accused. The crowds joined in shouting false accusations. Without a trial, they're beaten with rods and thrown into prison. That's opposition. That's the one that he had. Now, what about this one that he says he still has? Well, it's the same thing. He just finished telling them he's in prison in Rome, waiting for trial before Caesar. He doesn't know if his head is going to come off or not. It's opposition. And they're sharing in that same conflict. Um, they're still in Philippi. No doubt, um, it's still hostile territory. They're not a popular group. They're still opposed by the Roman officials who said, no, you must worship Caesar. And they said, no, Jesus is king. Not popular. Jesus warned, John 15, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than its master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they're going to live this gospel-worthy life, they're going to have to be fearless. It will not be easy. Jesus said, follow me. And then what did he do? He, he walked into false accusations and beating and whipping and crucifixion. Why are we surprised when it's hard to follow Jesus? Don't be frightened. This particular word here, frightened, um, it's unique in the New Testament. This is the only place that it's used. Um, but Plutarch, a Greek historian who wrote shortly after Paul, um, he used it to speak of a horse in battle that had spooked on frantic, thrown its rider. I think that's just a great picture, isn't it? There's nothing worse than a horse that spooks easy, easily. I am, I am amateur horse rider number one. I'm the guy that, you know, pays for the little tour where the, your horse's nose is touching the butt of the horse in front of you. Um, and if that horse spooks, I'm done for. A, a horse that spooks easily is terrible. 
You don't want that horse in battle. You, you don't want to ride that horse on a fall day if there's a breeze. There's a leaf that blows by and, and it, you're gone. Don't spook when the world attacks. Don't, don't jump in, in shock and, and fear. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Oh, I'm facing suffering. Where did this, where'd this come from? Peter says, you're surprised by this? You thought this was strange? You know what you signed up for? Remember Jesus said, follow me, and then he walked to Golgotha? Follow him. We ought to expect it. And in fact, if we take Paul seriously, we ought to embrace it. It's crazy. We ought to embrace it. Paul says this is a, a clear sign. Your suffering under the opposition of the world is a clear sign of two things. First, of their destruction. The world which sets itself up in opposition to Christ which whether they admit it or not, they, they, they don't even admit to believing in God, but they hate him. And they're relentless in their blind hatred of the things of God and the people of God. And it's evidence that their judgment awaits them. It's evidence of which side they're on. It's a clear sign. But it's also a sign for us of our salvation. Jesus said, they hated me, they will hate you also. Jesus said, follow me, and then walked into opposition. And so as you face opposition, as you feel the, the hatred of the world building against you, hey, we're going the right way, right? This is like how my wife gives directions. You men, your wives do this. Drive until you see the barn, and then you turn left, and you go to the tree, and then, well, there it is. There's the, there's the marker. There's the, there's the landmark. You found suffering? You're on the right path. No suffering, really easy going. Everyone loves your version of the gospel. You might be missing something. You might want to revisit that. So our suffering, the hatred of the world, and I think even more specifically, us standing firm against that opposition, whether trials come, we're firm in our faith, is a sign. First Peter 1.6, he says, in this you rejoice. You rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You can be assured and confident in your faith as you go through trials and opposition because of those trials and opposition. You can see my faith has been tested. I've been, I've been counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. And I, and I didn't waver. I held firm. Praise the Lord. It's confidence. It's, it's confirmation and and now there are those who suffer, let's be clear, because they're mean and angry and they say horrible things and, and maybe they just happen to swing a Bible around while they do it. There's no honor in that, right? Let's, let's bring the fruit of the Spirit back in here as well. If you're standing firm together in the Holy Spirit, producing love, joy, peace, patience, faithfulness, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control, 
and you face opposition because of the gospel, not because you're being mean, and rejoice. Rejoice. Verse 29, back in, in Philippians, he says, he says this, is, it's, this is crazy. It's been granted to you for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's granted to you. The, the word here, it's the same root as the word grace. This is God's gracious gift to you that you would not only believe in him, so your faith is a gift of grace and has all kinds of theological implications to that, but that's not the point here. The point here is, not only is your faith a gift, but your suffering is a gift. For the sake of Christ, a gracious gift. So Peter wasn't kidding. Peter wasn't using hyperbole when he said, rejoice when you share in sufferings for Christ. Receive it as a gift. That, that's hard. That, that takes some, some kind of retraining of the brain. It's for your good. God is using suffering and trials and specifically opposition in refining your faith to increase your joy in him and your joy in eternity. Be secure in your faith. Trust God. Be fearless. That gets me excited. Even the most terrifying opposition, the most horrible threat, imprisonment or, or execution, it's, it's just a leaf in the wind. Don't spook. Don't freak out. Don't, don't run. Luke 21. I, I, love, I love this passage. It, 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 Jesus just sometimes says the most insane things. You'll be delivered even by parents and brothers, and relatives, and friends. And some of you they will put to death. Get that. Some of you will be put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. So, so some of you are going to be beheaded, but not a hair on your head will perish. Jesus, which is it? This is crazy talk. He's saying, no, there's something more than just this life. There's something far above the, the persecution and the trials that we face in the here and now. And by your endurance, even unto death, you will gain life, life eternal. This is that, this is that invincibility of Paul. This is him saying, all I have is Christ. To live, it's Christ. To die, it's Christ. My joy is in him. That's my goal. So he's untouchable. Don't spook. This is part of God's grace, grace to you. And it's a sign to the world of their destruction and to you of your salvation. By your endurance, you'll gain life. Do you trust him? Do you have that kind of secure faith? But you say that's maybe a little too easy a conversation right now. We live in this glorious free country. We don't have persecution. We don't have opposition. Um, I would maybe ask you to look a little more closely. I would beg to differ with that. You live in a world that opposes the God that you worship. You live in a world that opposes God's word. There, there's an article uh, just this week in the Calgary Herald commenting on the provincial prayer breakfast that's going to happen uh, in a couple of weeks in Edmonton. 
And the author noted that the event was promoted with 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 2 on the poster, verse that calls us to pray for our leaders and those in authority that might live quiet and peaceful lives. And so that seems fine. That's innocuous enough. Um, and then this, uh, this poor journalist um, continued to read 1 Timothy. That was a bad idea. Um, she just got herself all worked up into knots. Do you know that this same author in this same book that supposedly God's word then tells women to dress modestly? How dare he? What right? Worse than that, it goes on to say that women should not have leadership over men in the church. Shock. Her conclusion is that though this looks well-intentioned and supporting of our government, that it is used, quote, willfully and if unwittingly to promote a retrograde society based on 19th century morals, attitudes, sexism, and racism. Well, I would argue with pretty much all of that. Um, We're going way back before 19th century. (laughs) But her conclusion is Christians, these kinds of Christians who actually believe this book have no place in the public square. That's her words. No place in the public square. This is an Alberta newspaper this week saying you have no place in the public square. I hate to think what she would find if she kept reading. This book is dangerous. It it doesn't sit well. Um, We have doctors here who I I should have called and asked, but have significant pressure to be uh, referring for abortions or uh, birth control that that causes uh, abortions or may. There's all kinds of pressure on them to, to, to give up on those convictions. Where's that going to end? What do you do with that when the world comes pressing in and says, you can't hold to that. That's wrong. It's not acceptable. That has no place in our society anymore. And what if they were to keep reading? See what the Bible says, not, not just about sexual ethics and sanctity of life, but about the wickedness of the human heart the penalty of sin, the wrath of God. If you're bothered by what the Bible says about gender roles, there's a lot more coming. God doesn't just demand authority over how you dress and the way we define ourselves as men and women, but on every single square inch of your life, he demands it. Just try to walk into a secular university and talk about original sin. Call people to repent. Tell people the lordship of Christ. You're going to get run off. Make no mistake, we live in a world that opposes us. And maybe it hasn't hit you directly yet, but it opposes us together. And and it's coming. It's coming. And many, many churches have already spooked. There's not yet been widespread legal action against the church. But there are many who have already said, hey, you know what? That the whole gender thing, just it's not a hill we're going to die on. Just let it go. It's not safe to teach it, so we'll stop teaching it. Don't talk about a God who created male and female, unique and distinct, who ordained marriage between a man and a woman, who condemns any sexual activity outside of marriage. In fact, let's just stop talking altogether about sin and judgment 
Those aren't things that people like to hear. Just stop. We don't, we don't talk about those things anymore. Let's talk about love and peace and just keep it generic. Because the world opposes those things. And, and we don't want to be opposed by the world, right? Maybe we do. Church, we need to be fearless. We need to stand firm, striving together for the faith of the gospel knowing that a gospel that does not offend a sinful human heart is also a gospel that will not save a sinful human heart. The gospel calls for humility and brokenness and repentance. It's in opposition to who we are. And the opposition against us will grow from here. You ever just flip through the Bible and wonder, like, do they even know what's in here? Like, this is crazy. I feel like we're, we're, we're on enemy territory here. We're, we're black ops troops in behind enemy lines, and eventually they're going to look at our passports and go, oh, wait a second, you've been teaching this? You guys are off the map. You're not welcome here anymore. It's coming. And that's a clear sign of their future destruction and of our salvation as Hebrews 13, 4.13 puts it, if indeed we hold our original competence firm to the end. And so what will we do? As the pressure mounts, as they threaten punishment and persecution, if they begin to revoke our freedoms, they take away earthly privileges that, that we've loved to this point, if they begin to take away hopes and dreams that we've had, it's going to be real hard to adopt a child soon if you won't sign off on certain categories of, again, gender and sexuality. That's going to break some hearts. We want to have a child, we want to adopt, and we can't because I can't sign that document. I want to have uh, the government subsidy to bring more, more staff to our summer camp, and we, and we can't because I can't sign that document. What are you going to do? As those things grow bigger and bigger, will you continue living that gospel-worthy life? Will you be able to say, no, Christ, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So take it away. Take it all away. Take away this building we'll find basements to meet in. Take away whatever freedom we will continue to worship our God. We'll continue to honor Christ day after day. Our manner of life will be worthy of the gospel right to the end. Secure in your faith, not, not frightened in anything. Just leaves in the wind. Standing firm and striving together in fellowship with this one singular focus, that that indestructible joy to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's our goal. That's our calling. That's our hope and our joy. Let's pray. Father, we need you. Lord, you know how quickly we are distracted to find our, our identity and our peace and our joy in a thousand other things. You've reminded us again of the one thing, 
that we might live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. Oh God, help us. That we would anchor our hearts there. Lord, help us to stand firm. There are so many pressures mounting. There are so many difficult conversations that come and go. Help us to stand firm, unashamed. Lord, help us to be striving together, side by side, linking arms with one another, letting others into our lives as we struggle together to grow in this glorious faith. Lord, that we would make progress, that there would be progress in our own hearts as we come to trust in you, as we grow in maturity, as we come to know you more and more. Lord, that there would be progress as you build your church. We've seen it so many times as persecution mounts that the blood of the saints becomes the seed of the church and you do your glorious work in spite of all of the attacks. That's a clear sign. When people come to Christ, Lord, that's what we long to see. Lord, help us. Help us to be fearless. Help us to see this world rightly, to see the, the, the possible threats from our uh, increasingly secular and corrupt government. Help us to see the, the increasing threats from the world around us and that opposition uh, as being no threat at all to our joy and our eternity with you. God, that we might be faithful Whatever this life brings, success or failure, fulfillment of our dreams or wondering, God, that we would hang on that one thing to live a life worthy of this glorious gospel that we might say with Paul, to live is Christ, to die is gain, and that we might hear from you, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.